All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, send forth your light and your truth that they may lead us into your presence, that we may know you not only in terms of who and what you are and what you have declared for us to believe and do, but that we might also know you personally, that we might not be like the Samaritans uh, who knew not the God who they worshipped or the Athenians who worshipped as it were an unknown God, but that we would know you. And we thank you for the promise of the new covenant that promises that all of your believing people will know you and will have an intimate relationship with you, you as our God and we as your people. We shall all know the Lord. Use this class to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking up in our series of introductory lectures on theology proper. Uh, We began last time with a definition of theology, and we remarked that the word theology comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and logos, which means word. And so we traced the usage of uh, that phraseology throughout the New Testament, the word of God, the uh, uh, rational discourse concerning God, the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God. And in doing so, we're defining theology in its broadest sense. And one of the reasons we're doing these introductory talks is to set the stage so that we can eventually get to theology proper. So theology proper is that aspect of theology in general that deals with the doctrine of God. But we're defining theology in general as the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God. And so at this point, it raises questions or confusion because aren't these two the same thing? How can we define theology proper as the doctrine of God and theology in its broader sense as the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God? Um, In addition, it raises some questions because we noted that some theologians have defined theology in a way that includes our response to the knowledge of God. So they've defined theology, for instance, William Ames, the science of living for God, or William Perkins, the science of living blessedly forever. And so they've incorporated faith and love, if you will, doctrine and practice into their definition of theology. So I want to make a few comments about that before we pick up in our outline on supernatural or special revelation. Uh, In the scriptures, we do find an emphasis upon faith and love, upon knowledge that accords with godliness. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.3, Titus 1.1, the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And so when we speak of theology in general as the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God, we're not excluding our response of love. We're not excluding it, but we're highlighting the fact that although there's a practical side of theology, theology in its most emphatic 
definition focuses our attention upon the knowledge that we have, the intellect, faith, our belief system. It's not that uh, it's not that faith isn't pregnant with love, but when you greet a pregnant woman, you generally greet her. You don't greet the baby in her womb unless you're married to her and you you know pat her tummy or something like that. But in our definition, we're we're recognizing faith as pregnant with love. We're recognizing the theory and belief system and doctrine of God as pregnant with living blessedly forever and living for God. So understand these two things are not incompatible. We're focusing on, however, the first part. Uh, Now, when we do theology, we've been commanded to do it. So in a sense, when we're learning, when we're knowing, when we're Uh, discussing theoretical doctrines. We're actually doing something God's called us to do. So it's inescapable, no matter how you want to look at it or slice it and dice it, the intellectual and the practical side, the faith and the love are interchangeable. But obviously, our focus when we talk about theology is the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God, uh, which is then pregnant with godliness and love. Uh, So the practical is included, but the theoretical is emphasized and is primary. And the reason this is important is because uh, long after William Ames and William Perkins wrote their definitions, we had the rise of liberalism, modernism, subjectivism in Western society after the Enlightenment. And among the liberals and modernists of the 19th and 20th centuries, they sought to promote the idea that the Christian faith and Christian doctrine are really just a description of our personal feelings and our personal subjective experience, and that we're not dealing with truth claims and propositions and knowledge, justified true beliefs, but the science of theology is simply dealing with subjective human experience throughout the ages in relation to religious uh, topics. And so it, it turns theology into something other than a true science which is seeking to establish verifiable truth. And our theology is not ethics. So we gotta be careful when Ames and Perkins said what they said in their definition, it made sense in the age of the Puritans. But in our age, post-enlightenment, post-modernism, so on and so forth, post-liberalism, in our context, we have to guard the objectivity of theology that our theology is not primarily about ethics or history or psychology. It's about the knowledge of the truth, the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God. Now again, we said that you might have the question, then how is our broader definition distinguished from theology proper? If all theology is the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God, then what's unique about theology proper? Because that's the doctrine of God. Listen to B.B. Warfield as he makes this distinction in his inaugural address called The Idea of Systematic Theology as a Science, 1887. It's a great quote. Quote, A science is defined from its subject matter, 
And the subject matter of theology is God in his nature and in his relations with his creatures. Theology is therefore that science which treats of God and of the relations between God and the universe. So when we say that theology, broadly speaking, is the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God, again, we're including there not just the nature of God, but his relation to his creatures, the relation between God and the universe. Warfield goes on. To this definition, most theologians have come, and those who define theology as the science of God mean the term God in a broad sense as inclusive also of his relations, end quote. So when we say theology in general is the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God, we're including God's eternal plan, God's works of creation and providence, God's law, everything, God's work of salvation, uh, God's relationship to the universe. All those things are included, not merely the particular doctrine of who and what God is, which is theology proper. Uh, And the fact that theology proper and theology more broadly share the term theology actually has a significance for us. As we're seeking to look at theology as a whole, let's not miss the fact that the word we use for all the doctrines that we're surveying is a word that points us to the doctrine of God, right? By using the word theology for the whole counsel of God, we're saying that the knowledge of God is integral to every aspect of the whole counsel of God. So listen again, Warfield, quote, when so conceived, it is natural to take a step further and permit the methodology of the science, as well as its idea, to be determined by its distinguishing element. So how we do theology and what we say and do in theology is determined by how we define it. And if it's defined by the doctrine of God, in terms of the word theology, then listen to what he says, quote, theology as a science is and must be theocentric or God-centered. He goes on, we quickly see that there can be but one center about which so comprehensive a subject matter can be organized, the conception of God, end quote. He also says this, quote, the character of our religion is, in a word, determined by the character of our theology, end quote. So understand that theology as a whole really revolves around theology proper at the center, who and what is God. And that's why our teaching series here is so vital, and that's why historically, the church has usually started its systematic theology with the doctrine of God. Now, it is true that the Westminster Confession and the Irish Articles of Religion and various other documents begin with Scripture, but they begin with Scripture to establish the authority on which we gain any knowledge whatsoever about theology. They're they're starting, in other words, with this introductory material but then they move to the doctrine of God. And that's actually how theology should be done. That's what we're doing. We're starting with the introductory, what's called prolegomena, the preparation for study. And that's where we look at the authority of Scripture and how we know what we know about God 
natural and special revelation. But after that, we start with God. So really, Westminster's not necessarily saying anything different than, than was said throughout the history of Reformed theology um, because they're starting with this prolegomena, this preparation, and so are we, and, and so it is throughout uh, church history. So with that said, um, we pivot now to where we're at in our outline where we're looking at revelation. We've considered natural or general revelation in creation, conscience, and cognition. The way God reveals himself, but the natural man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. But now we're pivoting to supernatural revelation, special revelation. And this special revelation comes to us before the fall and after the fall. Uh, We said that before, that even before the fall in Genesis 2, God comes to Adam and reveals things concerning the Sabbath, concerning the covenant of works, concerning marriage, concerning the garden. God speaks supernaturally, directly. God, as it were, intervenes and speaks directly, not immediately through the creation or through his own conscience or through his own thought process with the light of nature, but God supernaturally breaks in and speaks directly to him. That's supernatural revelation, and we call it special revelation. Remember, general revelation is general. It tells us who God is. It tells us something about morality, but it doesn't tell us about the Trinity, and it doesn't tell us about salvation. So it's more general, but special revelation is special. It reinforces what we've already got through general revelation. It reinforces and clarifies like spectacles to make it clear uh, so that we can um, put a finer point on biblical ethics and issues of who God is, what God is, but it also goes above and beyond what we could know from nature. And it reveals things like the Trinity and things like God's covenant of grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus makes reference to the special nature of special revelation when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus is confronting Nicodemus with the reality of uh, the need that he had to be born again from above. And Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He doesn't know these things. But Jesus says, John 3.11, Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is bringing special revelation. He's talking to Nicodemus about earthly things, okay? Human sin, human depravity, the hardness of the human heart, the willfulness of the human mind and spirit that needs to be born again, needs to be transformed, okay? That's an earthly thing. You could know this from the light of nature that man is sinful. Man in his own condition cannot obtain God's blessing. He needs to be born again. Now, you couldn't determine that God ever promised to regenerate. You couldn't determine how God might do that. But you could determine that man is hopelessly sinful 
based on earthly things, based on general revelation. But Jesus is saying, if you can't even understand that, uh, how are you going to understand this special revelation of the Son of God, who is God and man? He says, I'm here with you. I came down from heaven and I'm in heaven. So I'm physically, spatially located here, speaking to you, Nicodemus, but I'm also um, omnipresent. I'm everywhere present as God. How are you going to understand the Trinity? How are you going to understand my deity, my humanity, my incarnation? How are you going to understand the new birth from above by the Holy Spirit? Uh, If you can't even understand natural revelation, uh, how are you going to understand even the teachings of the Old or the New Testament on these topics. So, supernatural, special revelation. God gives us more than we got in nature. He doesn't give us less. He reconfirms nature, but He gives us more. Now, um, we're going to have, as you can see, if you go down the outline uh, in theology proper, we're going to deal with God's existence and God's revelation. So we're going to spend more time on the relationship between general and special revelation. And, um, but let me just say something as a, as a bit of a teaser for what we're going to do later in that future lecture. Uh, there's a lot of debate and controversy in our day concerning how our understanding of natural revelation and let's say knowledge that we get from natural science and how that might legitimately impact our understanding of special revelation, in particular the Word of God. We're going to get to those things, but this is an important question. How does knowledge we get from general revelation, natural revelation, How ought that to impact our understanding of the teaching of special revelation in the Scriptures? And let me give you a couple examples of how we ought to answer this question. Uh, When Scripture speaks of a natural event or a natural phenomenon or uh, an aspect of the natural world, we can gain insight in our interpretation and application of that scripture from what we glean from natural science and natural revelation. So if Jesus is telling a parable about wheat and tares and scientists can tell us something about wheat and tares, that can impact our understanding of the text to a greater extent. Um, And so on and so forth. God made the stars. He knows them all by name. Well, Based on astronomy, we can have some sense of the great multitude of stars, and that can impact our understanding of that passage. Uh, There there are countless examples. I would even argue if the Bible speaks of the four corners of the earth, and scientists can demonstrate that the earth is round, we can understand that that was used in a figurative way. Why? Because it's part of the natural world, and natural science has the ability to glean and gain insight regarding the natural world so as to inform how we understand references to that natural world in the Bible. And we should expect that those references are always going to be consistent, and in fact they are. But people take this fact and jump to a further conclusion that leads us astray 
from a proper understanding of the relationship between natural and special revelation. Because they take the fact, again, just reiterating this, that when the Bible speaks of a natural event or an aspect of the natural world, natural science can inform us. And they then take it to the next level and they say, well, if Scripture speaks of a supernatural event or a supernatural phenomenon or an aspect of the supernatural world, then natural science can inform that and can, in fact, transform our interpretation of what the Bible says about a supernatural event or an aspect of the supernatural world, if we can call it that. And a a classic example to show the foolishness of this uh, would be the Russian cosmonaut, you know, who goes up into the uh, atmosphere and into space and he says, I didn't see God, you know, because, well, if natural science didn't observe something in the supernatural world, well, then we should we should just pack it up, right? Well, natural science does not have the capacity to tell us anything about the supernatural. And, and where you get into trouble is when Christians say, well, because science can tell us that the earth is uh, round, therefore, science can tell us things just with, with a blank check that can overturn biblical interpretation. Well, what about the creation of the world? If the creation of the world was a supernatural, miraculous event where God spoke the world into existence, then science can't tell us anything about it, okay? Think about that. Science can't tell us, uh, if we were to send scientists to interview Adam and Eve at their, at their wedding, or look at the wedding photos, you know, um, could they tell us how old Adam and Eve are? No, they could not because they would say, oh, Adam and Eve are 25, when in fact they're five minutes old or a day old or five days old or whatever. Um, Natural science can't tell us how old the wine at Cana is. When Jesus turned water into wine, a scientist would test the wine and he would not come to the conclusion that it's five minutes old because it was a miracle. Natural science cannot tell us how old the earth is or when God supernaturally created it. Natural science can only tell us things that deal with the natural world, and so they have, uh, natural scientists have, a, have a, an appropriate place for increasing our knowledge of what the Bible says about the natural world, but science cannot impact our understanding of Scripture when it speaks of supernatural events, such as creation. Only God would know when and how he supernaturally, miraculously created the world. Only he would know that. And only the Bible tells us about it. Natural science is limited to what is natural. So understand that. Natural and special revelation have a give and a take. They're both aspects of God's truth. We don't want to be um, Luddites or ignoramuses who have no concern with science Again, study the wheat and the tares and off to the races. Let's learn more about what Jesus was saying, but we, we need a brake pedal on that type of thought, uh, and I think we've provided that. So, uh, natural or supernatural special revelation. First, you have unwritten revelation, where God speaks from heaven at Mount Sinai, divine utterance, or God reveals himself by way of a dream, 
such as the dreams that were given to Joseph or to Nebuchadnezzar. Or God gives visions, such as in Ezekiel or in the book of Revelation. Uh, or God, or, or Peter in the book of Acts, when he sees the vision of the sheet uh, with all the unclean animals descending and, you know, God making them clean, kill and eat. Theophany, God appearing in the burning bush, or uh, as the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the covenant. Uh, the incarnation is, in fact, in some sense, the greatest of all these unwritten acts of special revelation. You see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So God spoke in all these various ways. He spoke by His Son. And this is, this is the whole scope of divine revelation leading up to Christ in whom the fullness of God's Word is revealed. Now, obviously that draws our attention to, un, uh, to written revelation because we don't have the unwritten revelation. We weren't there. Second uh, Peter 1, Peter says, even if you were there, you actually have a more sure and certain word of prophecy in the Scriptures than he, than he says, and than I would have in trying to remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter, who had the unwritten lodged in his memory and the written set before him in the Bible, draws the attention of God's people to the written word as superior and more certain even than his own recollection of unwritten revelation on the Mount of Transfiguration. So written revelation is all we have. We reject the Jewish rabbinic traditions coming out of the Old Testament, the traditions of the elders. We reject the Roman Catholic claim to oral tradition. We have the scriptures. And uh, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God the Holy Spirit. And it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so it is all we need and all we have. It is fully sufficient, and we don't have access to the unwritten oral traditions or writings or re recollections of, of people outside the Bible. We, we don't have an accurate record of any of these things except in Holy Scripture. And so in terms of written revelation, we have the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and these have been providentially preserved for us. Uh, it's very important when we look at providential preservation. I know I went off on something of a tangent in the morning sermon about this, but this is crucial. God committed Scripture to writing. He inspired it without error, infallible, inerrant. Okay? He produced by the, by the Holy Spirit, carrying along these various authors of Scripture. He produced Scripture, but He doesn't just produce a Bible in the original manuscript, and then, who, you know, 2,000 years later, we're trying to reconstruct it, because although He made a Bible without error, by the time you get to us, 
who knows what it says because there's all these disagreements and discrepancies. And I mean, what sense would it make for God to, as it were, go to all the trouble of inspiring a perfect and inerrant Bible and then to allow it to be subject to the ordinary course of providential corruption by the hands of men? What sense would that make? We know that the Bible and God himself uh, is one who makes sense, okay? So, um, that's not my proof text there, but just common sense would set us on that course by, as a default to begin with. But Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Notice it's not the word total or, or the word in its entirety, but there are discrepancies in the details. It's specific words, the plurality, the multitude of the words of God. We speak of verbal plenary inspiration. The very words of God, all the words of God, are pure, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. It goes on to speak of God preserving them, but I think that's actually speaking of God's people being preserved by way of faith in that promise. There's debate on that point, but clearly seven times purified. This is how the Bible speaks of itself. This is how the psalmist, David, spoke about the word in his own day. This is the way Jesus and the apostles, this is the way the Old Testament prophets, it's the way they all spoke about not some hypothetical Bible in the past that Indiana Jones is trying to find, but the Bible they had in their hands. They spoke of it as pure. And, and, and we're not saying here that every tran- that, that you know, there's a perfect English translation or something like that, like the King James only is. But what we're saying is that God's word in the original Greek and Hebrew is preserved throughout the ages so that we can have a reliable copy of God's word. Providential preservation. Um, and you can see this 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, that the word of God abides forever. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, again, we have a more sure word of prophecy. So we can, be con- we can be confident in the Bible that God has preserved throughout the ages. And in particular, I, I want to look at some passages in the Gospels concerning the way Jesus looks at his own word, uh, Matthew 26, 13. This is right after Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus with the fragrant oil just prior to his death around the Passover time. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That is a prediction. Jesus is saying that this account of Mary anointing him will last as long as the gospel is proclaimed in the world. Okay, this is a perpetual account. Now, if we found a Bible, or if we found, let's say, uh, somehow the scholars came out based on some new archaeological discovery, and they said, you know what, we now realize that Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 12 which describes what the woman did, isn't in the text. 
and, and it's, all the evidence is against it. It's not in the text. So all we have is Jesus assuring us that this story will be told, but the story's gone, okay? And let's say the same thing happened in the parallel gospel accounts. You could not sustain a defense of the Christian faith at that point. The Bible would be a contradiction. If this story were taken out and all we had was verse 13, it would be a contradiction which would disprove the Christian faith entirely. In other words, if Jesus says it's going to continue intact, then for him to be a true prophet of God, it has to remain intact. Otherwise, he spoke something that was false. Okay, So at the very least, I hope we all would, would, would hold that if the scholars tried to attack Matthew 26... 6 through 12, and use all these critical reconstruction methods that we would say that's inconsistent with the Bible because you can't hold to what Jesus said if those things are taken out. Now, let's turn back to Matthew 24. Hopefully, we've, we've guarded those verses, by the way, from the critical reconstructionist scholars. But Matthew 24 Verse 34, listen to what Jesus says. He broadens it. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So now Jesus extends this to the red letter part, portion of the Bible. His words will by no means pass away. So, that's extending it pretty far. That's extending, even if you just took it, his words in Matthew 24, that's broadening it. Uh, for us to have a defense of the Christian faith, we need to be careful here. Jesus is saying his word will be preserved, not just the, the section in Matthew 26. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18... For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So that's the whole Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the words of Christ, I mean, at what point do we not have to reckon with the fact that the Bible claims to have been accurately preserved so that we, we don't take the approach, and not to say there's no such thing as textual criticism, that, you know, certainly even the version of the Bible that we have um, coming at, you know, the Textus Receptus, there was critical work done with varying manuscripts. But we fundamentally must reject the idea that we've lost the New Testament, we got to go back and find it and reconstruct it. That is the approach of the ESV, the NASB, that's the approach of Nestle Allen, all, all the, the common popular uh, uh, scholarly trends today are in that direction. And, and many of them are liberals who don't even believe the Bible. Some of them are solid conservatives. But the point is, we have a preserved text that God has kept for us. More could be said there, but our presupposition is this is preserved. Yeah, one manuscript might differ from another, but that work, number one, has been done in history, and uh, it's it's something that, that we're doing with the manuscripts we have, not trying to reconstruct things we don't have.
Anyway, um, it is preserved providentially, and it is sufficient. You saw this morning how those who promote the critical reconstruction method, even those people will admit that according to the evidence, Romans 5 verse 1 probably should be rendered, therefore having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. William Shedd says that has the most evidence. Hodge basically agrees, okay? Um, But they translate it, we have peace with God, you get the impression, so as not to make waves. Shedd says for dogmatic reasons. Well, don't claim that you have a critical reconstruction method based on all of this scholarship if at the end of the day you don't have the guts to go with the evidence when push comes to shove. I think the only consistent way to defend these doctrinal portions of the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3, the mystery of godliness, God manifested in the flesh, the only way to defend the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer, the only way to defend numerous proof texts in our confession of faith which are taken out by the critical reconstructionists, the only way to consistently defend it is to simply apply chapter 1 of our confession which deals with providential preservation. That doesn't answer all the questions. Some may say it's overly simplistic, but I would simply say this. Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Where do you ever see anyone in the Bible that has any kind of uh, exemplary value for us, who speaks about the Bible the way the critical scholars speak about it? Where do they ever speak about the Bible that they're quoting or the Bible that they have in their hand or the scroll that they're preaching from? Where do they ever speak about it as if there's this huge gap between the original inspired inerrant text and whatever we've been able to piece together by modern scholarship? They never do that. So if the way you speak about the Bible or the way various people speak about the Bible doesn't align with the way Jesus spoke about it and the apostles and the prophets spoke about it, there's a fundamental problem here. And uh, the list of casualties is almost endless. Again, Romans 5.1, are we going to retranslate that? Re-render that. Um, Do we have peace with God? If we go with the received text, we do have peace with God. Based on that verse, we don't have to question the reading. Okay, so based on God's written revelation, we understand that, this, that uh, Christian theology is based. Um, we do not do our theology based on the light of nature. We do not engage in systematic theology or any theological discipline in the church based upon our own conscience or the light of God's creation or human reasoning. We believe in sola scriptura, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine or for teaching. And it equips us. It equips the man of God, the prophetic man of God, Timothy. It equips him to preach true doctrine as a good work that he's been called to do. So, sola scriptura. We have the written word of God. That's where we get our theology. And now, when we look at Christian theology, we have to understand that it is twofold. It is both objective and subjective. This is crucial. From an objective standpoint, 
The Bible gives us doctrine, teaching. It is intellectual. You read through the epistle to the Romans, you're going to have to think. You're going to have to reason. You're going to have to listen to what Paul is saying and make a note of it and then listen to what he says here and compare it with what he's quoting in the Old Testament. There's an intellectual aspect to studying the Bible. We need to love God with all of our mind. The Bible is propositional. It's logical. And thankfully, it's accessible. We talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, which is ironic because hardly anyone knows what perspicuity means, but it means that it's easily understood, okay? Uh, Not to say that there aren't more difficult passages that um, unstable people twist to their own destruction, but it is the case that the basic message of the Bible is accessible to the people of God simply by reading it. And certainly, like the Ethiopian eunuch, by having it further explained to them through the gospel ministry and so on and so forth. But it's intellectual, it's logical, it's propositional. We are Christ's disciples, His students. We need to be learning. Not just pastors, not just young, overzealous, single men. You, You need to be studying theology, whoever you are. And the Bible tells us that these things are ours that, yes, there are secret things that belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law, Deuteronomy 29, 29. So as Sproul would say, everyone's a theologian. Everyone needs to understand the Word of God, the doctrine of God, the whole counsel of God. We need to understand it objectively uh, as Deuteronomy 30 says, it's not, you know, over land and sea and in the depths, but it's here, accessible to us uh, in our hearts, in our ears, in our, in our mouths. It's here for us. And we need to study it and know it. Um, now, even an unconverted person can make sense to some extent of the intellectual content of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Unconverted person, because their theology is not the science of living for God, as Ames would say, but they have an objective, propositional, logical, intellectual understanding of many of the great doctrines, even the mysteries of the faith. So there is a great amount of accessibility, even for an unconverted person. That's why we hand out Bibles to unconverted people so that they'll read them and at least come in contact with the objective truth of Scripture. God confronts unconverted people through the mind and even in their fallen condition. To some extent, they can understand it. And uh, Paul went on missionary trips with Demas, who later forsook the Lord because he was in love with the world. But do you think Paul would have gone on a missionary trip with uh, a preacher who didn't know biblical doctrine? Do you think Paul would have wrote elsewhere in the New Testament commending Demas? And you know, would he have done that if Demas hadn't passed his presbytery exams? No, he was an unconverted person. He understood the objective truth of Scripture to an extent, but, uh, but again, he was unconverted. So, It is objective, but it has a subjective dynamic. 
true theology, as John Owen points out in his book that's been retitled Biblical Theology, um, is a spiritual science. The essence of the propositional truth of Scripture can be understood by the unconverted, but, but the well-being, the fullness of theology involves a subjective dynamic. It is spiritual. It is redemptive. Jesus is saying, no one knows the Father but the Son, and the one the Son reveals Him to, and come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and learn of me. Theology is personal and interactive. It's something where the Holy Spirit of Christ teaches and instructs us. Psalm 25, the Lord is our teacher. There's a glass ceiling on your theology if you're unconverted. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So to, to know it, we need the Holy Spirit in a saving way. In other words, to know the fullness of it to know it in the way we need to know it, to live blessedly forever, as Perkins would say. Uh, He says now, um, excuse me, verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. He goes on, verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is essential to being a good theologian in the best sense of that phrase. So there is a subjective dynamic, and I would argue in terms of pastoral ministry that uh, pastors who go to congregations and right off the bat are just... um, peppering the congregation with all these theological truths and distinctives and ethical controversies and, and trying to use a bunch of bullet point arguments to persuade everybody about every single thing, that there's foolishness there in, that, in taking that approach because uh, ultimately there's a subjective spiritual dynamic. The more people are walking with Christ in the Word and prayer, uh, in His presence throughout the day, the more they're serving God, the more they're walking in Him and living blessedly and living for God, the more teachable and the the more in a better position they're going to be to receive some of these more difficult truths of the Scriptures. And so it's important for us, not only in learning theology, but in teaching theology, to focus our attention not just on objective truth, but on the spiritual dynamic because people are not really going to benefit from the offensive truths of the Bible if they don't have a spiritual mindset that's ready and teachable and ready to believe whatever the Word of God tells them. Um, And William Ames does a great job of emphasizing this, probably to an extreme, but his point is that theology is not even primarily of the mind, but of the will. And he says, listen, you look at all these passages where God gives people over because they refuse to take pleasure in Him. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. He gives them over. And so much of bad theology is a result of our sinful choices and our willful ignorance. So he says primarily theology 
is about desiring God, loving God, and that that love for God in our will paves the way for us to understand His truth. And I think he goes too far with that, but it needs to be said that it's part of the equation. Um, And uh, we're going to conclude with this because our next section here of the outline is going to deal with the various disciplines of theology, and uh, we'll do that next time. But I want to leave you with this. Even though I wouldn't go as far as Ames, uh, he's on target to an extent. John 7, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, meaning God's will, Jesus says, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. You see there that there is an element where love believes all things. Yes, faith works by love, and we would speak to the primacy of the mind. We would hold to that over against maybe what Ames is saying. But there's another sense in which love believes all things. And it's our willingness to be taught that fuels our increase in knowledge and understanding in biblical truth. So that subjective dynamic must be there. Otherwise, we're spinning our wheels. I mean, if you're not reading the Bible and praying every day and and just walking with God increasingly, uh, even if you're limping along some days, but if, if you're not growing in grace, what's the point in one sense? of reading a bunch of theology books and refuting people on the internet. It's a waste of your time. Um, so we're, we're going to do this in a way, hopefully, that is somewhat holistic, objective and subjective. Uh, but our class here is Christian education. So we're not going to be talking about your personal prayer life uh, in our Sabbath school lecture series, but it's presupposed for you to get any value or benefit from these lectures. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are the God of truth, indeed the God of all truth, and that we can learn about you even from uh, the light of nature, seeing the heavens declare your glory, that even as we make scientific discoveries as your creatures, that we see something of your handiwork and can even gain insight regarding certain statements of the scriptures. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that your word in Scripture is the truth, that not a jot or tittle will fail until all has been accomplished, that the words of Christ will prevail and will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away, and our full confidence is them as the exclusive basis of Christian theology. We pray that you would not only teach our minds, but sanctify our hearts and our souls to love you and to have that certainty that the things which Christ has taught are indeed from you. We pray in his name. Amen.